John chapter 5, verse 31, you'll remember that Jesus is in a debate now with the Jewish leaders, with the religious leaders of his day. He has healed a, a paralytic man on the Sabbath day. He's stirred up no small controversy by doing so. Jesus is now engaged in revealing who he is. The Pharisees and the religious leaders alternately uh, rejecting him as the Messiah and then at the same time in an odd sort of way accusing him of being the Messiah. They're not happy in either case. So Jesus has been defending and promoting and declaring his deity as the Son of God. He says to them in our last time together that if you thought what that was was something, wait until you see what I do next. Not only are the dead living who believe in me now spiritually, but there's coming a day when the dead who are dead physically will live too, and the graves will be opened. He spoke of the, of the two resurrections, one spiritual, one physical to them in proof that He is God and that He is the Son of God clothed in human flesh. And now we come to verse 31 and He says this, if I, te- if I alone testify about Myself, My testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of Me and I know that the testimony which He gives about Me is true. You have sent John. And he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So Jesus continues this morning demonstrating that he is indeed the very Son of God. He is God. He is God in human flesh. And in reality, what Jesus is demonstrating and proving to those who are his skeptics should not be a source of contention for them. It shouldn't be something that they stumble over. Rather, it ought to be something that they rejoice about that salvation has finally come. It should be a source of their greatest fulfillment that they, among all the people in Israel who have lived before them, are alive at the coming of the One for whom they have so long waited. And yet they're so wrapped up in their traditions. They're so wrapped up in their prejudices that they cannot see and they cannot rejoice at the great salvation that is right before them in their very face. Proclaiming His glory and His grace. And so in John chapter 5, both now and as we continue on, Jesus takes the opportunity from a variety of different angles and from a variety of different points of attack, both defends and promotes the truth that He is not only the Son of God, but He is the Son of God for their salvation. Notice what He says at the end of verse 32. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 34. I have said these things so that you may be what? Saved. I'm not saying these things to torment you. 
I'm not saying these things to your damnation. I say to you these things because I care about your soul. I say these things so that you would be saved and yet you are rejecting all of them. If I have come and if I am the Son of God, then your salvation is here. Isn't that just simply dumbfounding? That salvation can be so in your very presence, at your very grasp, and yet it can be so rejected. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But there's a subcurrent here that I want you to notice this morning as we move through these verses. Is that, and that is this, that Jesus is also combating what is still problematic for all of us. Hey, I've been saved for X number of years. I've walked with the Lord for a number of years. I've read the Bible cover to cover X number of times. I study the Word of God X number of minutes per day. But there is still something in all of us that we need to hear from the Word of God about this morning, and that is this. We all struggle, as do His detractors in this text, with the partial acceptance of God's Word. We like the parts we like and we ignore the parts we don't. We want to hear some parts, but not all the parts. Have you ever heard anyone say this to you? You're talking to them about some issue from Scripture and they say, you know what? I only believe the red letters. I only believe the words Jesus actually said. Have you heard that? I don't know if that's a Bible Belt thing or what, but I've heard that throughout my life. I, you know, somehow those words are a little more inspired until you get to Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. Oh, and by the way, it is all profitable. And yet, how many times functionally do we become the red-letter people? Oh, I like this part. Oh, this is easy for me. I like this. this I, I'm kind of a, a New Testament guy, or I'm kind of a Proverbs kind of gal, or I'm this, or I'm that. I don't, really, I don't like that at all. All Scripture. Equally powerful, inspired, profitable, inerrant, infallible. There's a great hubris and a great pride in that, isn't there? Who died and made you judge over Scripture? Why do you think you have the prerogative to judge what God has clearly said? That's the real issue, isn't it? So here as Jesus is dealing with these religious leaders, here is God in human flesh, the very author of Scripture itself, standing before them and essentially saying, thus says the Lord, and they say, no, we don't think so. But I wrote it. I don't think so. I can prove it. I don't think so. And so for the rest of John 5, and really even into John 6, God in Christ is defending His inspired truth. Brothers and sisters, we dare not follow 
in the footsteps of these unbelieving people, regardless of how religious and right they may sound at times. We dare not follow in the path of church history figures like Marshawn of Pontius, who was the first to decide it was a good thing to unhitch from the Old Testament. Some of you get the modern reference to that. To unhitch from the Old Testament and divorce ourselves from the God of the Old Testament because, you know, He's that kind of grumpy God. We want a God who's loving. We want the words we want and we don't want the words that we don't want. And so Jesus essentially is saying, look, who will you believe? Are you going to believe my word, all of it, part of it, one witness, not another witness? Who will you believe? So I ask you the same question. Who will you believe? What will it take for you, friend, to accept the Word of God as it is given? Jesus is dealing with that spirit, that mentality of His detractors, His rejectors, who defy the full revelation of God in His person, in Jesus Christ. Oh, but but make no mistake, they are perfectly willing to accept Moses. Perfectly willing to accept John. Jesus makes that clear. They're perfectly willing to accept other prophets, but not Jesus. And so Jesus summons the witnesses beginning this morning and continuing on over the next two or three weeks. First of all, this morning I want you to see the invalid witness. Jesus says not all witnesses and not all Patterns and paths for witnesses are equal. There is a witness that could be called that would be an invalid witness. It would not count for much. Look at verse 31. Jesus says this, If I alone, if I by myself from self-authenticated authority testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now maybe you heard something in that that contradicts what you hear maybe Monday through Saturday in your life here. Well, this is your truth, but that is my truth. Jesus says, here's the problem. There can be no single unilateral validation of truth. If I come by myself and I'm the only one saying this, know this, that there is no truth in what I say. The, 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 the term is not true is a heightened sense in Jesus' original language. It simply means this. It's just not that it's not truth. It means it absolutely does not, has not ever existed. There's no truth to anything I say if I am the only one saying what I'm saying. Where does Jesus draw that from? Jesus is actually drawing upon a principle with which his detractors were incredibly familiar. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. It's a pattern that the Apostle Paul continues in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, as he deals with elders. And he says this, Listen, don't accept an accusation against an elder except it be on the basis of two or three witnesses. It is a 
pattern with which we ought to all be familiar, but it's a pattern that God sets early on. You don't accept one person's word and allow them to self-authenticate and self-validate. There is no individual witness or truth. Jesus, remember, did not come to break the law. Jesus came and lived under the law so that he understands even his witness must be corroborated by other witnesses as well. It does not exist if I am the only one saying what I am saying. I am not relying on myself. I have not. And I will not allow that to be the case. Why? Because he's living under the law. He's living under the principles that he himself wrote so many years ago. But Jesus is not depending on his own witness. And he's not riding his own coattails, so to speak. Because he has already made previous statements that tell us he does not need to do so. There already is credible secondary witnesses to his deity. Look back in verse 19. Jesus has just healed this man. Jesus has just taken this paralytic man, spoken to this man, and healed this man in a miraculous way. Imagine being there and seeing that. Uh, Imagine watching this man who has laid there for decades, unable to even move himself into the pool, following some fairy tale. Jesus speaks a word to him and the man's healed. Notice what Jesus now says in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing for whatever the Father does. These things the Son also does in like, exacting, reflecting manner. So if Jesus is saying He is the Son of God, who else is saying He's the Son of God? The Father. Go down to verse 30. Same chapter. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I wouldn't even try to do anything on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So if Jesus is telling someone that He is the Son of God, who is He? The Son of God is validated by the Father, not just His own words. This also clues us in to the reality that Jesus' authority and identity come not from Himself, but from a higher authority, the authority of the Godhead. And we might say, why is this so important? I get that. I believe that. You know, Christian, it's not just important that we know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And and why we labor over this point is this, that truth is on the line. Truth is on the line. And wherever truth is on the line, and when I speak of truth, I mean any truth. And I mean all truth. Where truth is on the line, it must be tamed with the utmost of sobriety. 
and importance. Because if there is no truth here, then there is no truth in anything. If truth is violated and compromised here, there is nowhere you can turn that you can say, here is truth. Truth is truth, and it's true at all times, in every place, in every circumstances. Truth does not change. And nowhere could that be more critically demonstrated than in who God is and who His Son is. Everything that is built must be built and predicated upon truth. That's true in every area of your life. Just think about it. Everything that is built and exists must be built and exists upon truth. You build something upon a lie, it's going to fall. Try building a house that violates the laws of physics. That's a house I'm not going in. And I would advise you don't either. Go to a surgeon who says, you know, I don't believe in anatomy. My truth is that that is a hollow body. I'll just cut right in and go to work. It's not a surgeon you want to visit. Why? He doesn't live by truth. Truth is absolute. It is imperative. It is pervasive at all times. Lies will self-destruct. Lies cannot last, which I guess should give us some measure of comfort as we look at the world around us as it increasingly embraces lies. It can't last. It will self-destruct. Truth prevails always and only. Eternally so because of its source. God Himself is truth. Jesus will say, won't He, in John chapter 14, verse 6, you know the verse. I am the way, and I am the truth. Therefore, I will prevail. Here over these religious detractors, I will prevail. I am truth. I don't just have truth. I don't just know truth. I am truth. And because of that, everything that I say will be true and thus will prevail and thus will conquer. Which we'll get to more in verse 34. Because Jesus is truth, all that Jesus speaks is truth. Because Jesus is reflecting the Father. If Jesus says or does something, you can know for a fact that the Father who is truth is also saying and doing exactly those very things. We read it in verse 19. We read it in verse 30. We'll read it in other places as well. If Jesus is doing it, be sure of this. The Father not only approves, but does the same thing. You may not see Him. You may not see the Father heal the paralytic man. You may not see with your physical eyes the Father speaking or hear Him audibly, but the Son did. And we know this, this is what the Father also does, and this is what the Father also says. I remember as a young boy, one of my uncles was a former submarine captain. 
had a distinguished career in the Navy. And I remember him talking about what it was like living in a submarine, which was enough to convince me never to join the Navy on the off chance that I got stuck in a submarine. But he loved it. Captain many missions back during the Cold War. And I remember one specific thing he said. He said that, you know, there's storms on the surface and we look at the hurricanes and we say, oh, wow, look at that. But what you don't realize is that that same storm on the surface is also a storm on the ocean floor. You may not see it, but it's happening because I've been through them. You may not be on the surface, but you're still getting battered around underneath. The same storm on the surface doesn't mean there's no storm underneath. What's happening on the surface happens underneath as well. The same it is with Jesus. What He's doing on the earth, trust me, the Father is also doing. He is also speaking, is also saying with the same powerful results. Jesus is going to call, and I don't want to borrow my thunder from the next Lord's Day, but verse 36, Jesus is going to call His Father as a witness. We'll get into this in more detail there. But since a single unilateral source is not a valid proof, Jesus gives us this briefest of insights here now in verse 32 that He does rely on His Father, which will be more fully fleshed out in verses 36 and following. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I by myself am an invalid witness, verse 31. Verse 32, we now have a superior witness. And look what verse 32 teaches us. There is another. There is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, he is not referring to John. Grammatically, it can't happen. It doesn't work that way. He will mention John next, but he is referring here specifically, still in the context of the previous conversation, to his father. There, guys, listen. There is an irrefutable witness I can call. It'd be better for you if you just believe now. The, the, the nuclear option is that I call this superior witness to you. And trust me, what he says about me is true. You see, it's a serious thing to refer to someone as a liar. And I don't think, dear Pharisee, so strict with the law of Moses, so ingrained in the ways of the Old Testament, I don't think you want to call you're God a liar, do you? But let me tell you, when I call him as a witness, he absolutely will testify of me. And you better know this, that his testimony is true. Was Moses true? Everything that Moses wrote, true? Creation, true? Oh yeah. Flood, true? Oh yeah. Babel, true? You better believe it. The judges, true? Oh, you know it. Prophets, we love them all. Did God speak through them? You better believe it. Did He ever lie? No, He never lied. Then He won't lie now. There's a superior witness that I can call Him. And oh, by the way, I will call Him. You see, guys, it's not what you think about me that matters. He has declared what matters. 
And if God says it's true, it doesn't really matter how many scholars you congregate in one seminary or one room, you're not going to destroy that truth. That's arrogance. That is the lie of Satan himself that you'll overthrow God with your truth. No, he testifies about me and it's true. It's not what you think about me that matters. It is what he says about me that ultimately matters. And so it is the Father that Jesus speaks of. He he delivers a devastating truth about who Jesus is, which teaches us another lesson. You have no vote in defining God. You, oh, I know that flies all over us, doesn't it? (laughs) Self-made people as we are. Proud people as we are. Intelligent people that we think ourselves to be. Listen, I don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. God defines Himself. And anything that we would say, well, you know, I like to think about God as... That's not a commentary on God. That's a commentary on us. And more than a commentary, it's a condemnation if it does not agree with the Word of God. We have no vote. We we don't get to define the Creator. We are merely the creature. And to use Paul's analogy, to use Jeremiah's analogy from Jeremiah 18, or Paul from Romans chapter 9, shall the thing created say to the one that created it? Careful. Be very, very careful. We don't go beyond or stop short of what God has declared in His Word. But I don't like that part. You don't get a vote. God has spoken. God has spoken, and it is so. We weren't there from the beginning. As soon as you can place yourself in eternity past, as part of that inner Trinitarian conversation that only God could have within the Godhead because He alone is eternal, then come back and talk to us. As soon as you can comprehend the mind of God and what He has revealed, then come talk to me. We we had this conversation this week in the office. When we get to heaven, glorious day, all the glories of heaven, you're still not going to know everything. Oh, we'll have knowledge that is better than what we have now, but we will never have the infinite mind of God. Not even in eternity. We will not be God. Don't confuse those things. God will alone still be God. And that's as we would want it. If He at any point can condescend to the point of being fully predictable by humanity, even in our glorified state, He's no longer God. We don't want a God like us. Not even in our glorified state. We want a God who is above our perceptions and will, especially here and now, are so flawed by sin. We dare not take the Word of God into our own hands and say, hey, you know what? I think I can interpret this better than what it is 
clearly revealed as saying, or in what other scripture illuminates and elucidates that and helps me to understand that. I've got this one. I've got this one. That's how liberalism starts. Theologically speaking. We know better. We can rationalize this thing out. Miracles? Oh, come on. Really? Could you reproduce that in a laboratory? Then we better not believe that. And on and on it goes. So here, Jesus calls the superior witness that stands in contradiction to man's wisdom, that asserts that it is a higher authority on which he speaks and bases his own testimony, one that is corroborated by the Father. Now, what's the proper response? You know, the proper response to that is singular. It is to fall upon our knees and to confess in faith that God is absolutely true. And that God alone is true. And that God alone is sovereign. That God alone is God. That God alone is Master. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2.11 To the glory of God the Father. What does God want to hear you say? Jesus Christ is Lord. God doesn't want you to argue with Him. God's not interested in a debate. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Their children, we speak truth to them. We speak uncomfortable truth to them. And they, but, uh, what? One word. Yes, sir. Two words. Yes, ma'am. Bow the knee. What does God expect? Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is eternal God. That's what I want to hear. To the glory of God the Father and according to Jesus, to your own salvation. This is beyond debate. So Jesus and kind condescension as he often does because they're obviously still not getting the point there's no bowing going on yet jesus calls his first full witness and that is the prophet john the baptist look at verse 33 you have sent to john and he testified to the truth guys you call the witness and the witness came And the witness was acceptable to you. But you didn't like what the witness said. It's kind of like an attorney not really vetting the people he puts on the stand in the courtroom. And he calls a guy and the guy blows his whole case apart. (laughs) Well, you must have thought he was a credible witness as the judge or you wouldn't have called him. Just because he says what you didn't like doesn't invalidate him as a witness. He is a witness. You said he was a witness. 
Jesus now does what he, they would wish he would not have done, and that is he calls the source that they himself have validated. Jesus calls John, and John testifies. The wording is such that it is settled testimony. It is in the record, never to be expunged. It is truth. One commentator says that what John spoke had lasting power and effectiveness. And so Jesus now calls them to rehearse again, not just with the lame man who's been healed, but with John the Baptist. Guys, do you remember when? And at this point, they've got to be pounding their head. Oh no. Oh no. Guys, in fact, let me take you back to chapter 119. Would you join me there, please? Guys, do you remember you called John? He was your witness, not mine. And you called John the Baptist. Chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem. These are the best of the best. To ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He says, ah, I am but a voice of one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. John will then go on in their very presence when he sees Jesus entering and declare those glorious words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, if John's a credible witness, then John just pointed at Jesus and said, Behold your salvation. And yet here you are, acting like you never heard Him. If I need a second witness, guys, will John suffice? After all, you've admitted him into the record. Would John work? Jesus puts them in a conundrum. And it's precisely for their sake that he does this. You see, while we might look at this and our flesh goes, boy, Jesus, get him. Sick him. Jerks. How dare they? Tear them up! Lay them low! String them up! Don't, let, don't give them any wiggle room! Give them what for? And we're cheering Jesus on! And, and we're, we're, we're... Go! Wield John like a sword, man! Cut them off at the knees! That's our flesh. But are you glad Jesus doesn't respond that way? Jesus isn't trying to win a debate. Jesus is trying to win sinners. Look at verse 34. You know, you believe, John. I'll tell you again, the testimony I receive, it's not from man. I don't depend on man to validate me. But I call John. I say these things so that you might be saved. I'm bringing up John 
Because John declared the essential message, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away your sin. That's why I want you to remember John. So that you don't die and perish and burn for all eternity in a hell you believe in. I called John that you might be saved. Not to put you in your place. Brothers and sisters, that is grace upon grace upon grace. And it never stops. Even on the cross, what are Jesus' words? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He could have rained down fire and brimstone. But He doesn't call down fire and brimstone. He calls for forgiveness. Hey, I'll call John. John will testify not only of me, but he will testify of me for you that you might be saved. That they might be saved. As only God can, Jesus rebukes their faithlessness with perfect justice and simultaneously calls on them to believe with perfect grace. Only God can do that. Only God can send His Son and die on a cross and cause justice and mercy to meet. From our human vantage point, we look at it and we say that is all wrath and that is all justice. But you get around the other side of the cross and you say, no, it wasn't just, it was wrath and it was justice, but it was also mercy and grace. How did two meet together? In one body, in one man, in one event. God. No human could devise that nor do that. Jesus says, I called John. Yes, it proves my point. But it also provides for you a way to get off the highway to your own destruction. Guys, here's the exit ramp. You better take it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps you're here this morning and you doubt the validity of Jesus. You say, you know, I just need more proof. I need more proof that He is who He says He is. I need proof that He'll do what He promised He would do. May I graciously say to you, He owes you no more explanation than what's been given. Yet, yet, in grace, He's not given you what you deserved. Not yet. You're here this morning. And if you're here this morning and you're doubting, you are here because of His grace. You're here because of great mercy. 
Not only are you here on this earth, you are here in this room this morning hearing these particular verses. Because God determined that to be so for your salvation just as it is for these men. May I say to you, Christ is right before you. The God of heaven is right before you here in this book. He offers to you salvation. Grab it. Believe it. Trust it. Because His witness is true. And you are here this morning and your being here this morning is proof that He is true. He is offering to you salvation though you doubt. Were it not for Jesus, you would have already been consumed. I would have already been consumed. The world is absolutely drenched in sin and we are part of that system, that world, that depravity, those sinners. Yes, we are those sinners. Every one of us. We live in the realm of the prince of the power of the air. I don't believe in that stuff. You didn't watch the news yesterday, did you? We live in Satan's realm for now, but it is still our Father's world. Satan's a squatter. And he'll soon be evicted. And the Prince of Peace and the God of Salvation and all glory will reign. Satan may roam its contours now. Satan may pollute it with all of his foul, demonic, hellish lies. And they are not few. Have you ever asked yourself the question, then why isn't it hell now? If if it's as bad as that, if it's the prince of the power of the air, if it's his temporary territory, and if Satan roams about as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5 eight, seeking whom he may devour, and if the spirit of the age has swallowed up mankind in lies, how can we not describe this as hell? Because one man still stands. He doesn't stand on earth any longer as He did in this text. He now stands before His Father's throne. He stands here now among us by His Spirit, in His Word, testifying that there is still salvation to any who will believe. You see Jesus? In the Word this morning, do you see Him? Do you hear Him? Can you hear His truth? I say these things so that you may be saved. Do you hear that? Why then do you delay? Why do you reject? Come to Jesus. Believe that He is the Son of God sent for your salvation. Will you do that? He doesn't ask you to figure it all out, how it happened. We'll never figure that out. It's a miracle. He doesn't ask you to clean up your life and then come. That will never happen. 
Isaiah says, your best attempt at righteousness, all our righteousness, like filthy rags to be taken outside the city and burned. So don't go down that road. There's no salvation there. There's salvation only in the man who stands before you this morning in the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And yet, tragically, among this group, there were men who stood there demanding still more proof. Here's a mighty rebuke in verse 35, and we close. Speaking now of John again, the witness whom they validated. You know, John was the lamp. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And he was your star witness. The one to whom you went for knowledge. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Until it illuminated something you did not want to see. It illuminated those black letters instead of the red letters. And you didn't like that. It it shined a light on the truth and you didn't like the truth. And and we can go back to John chapter 3 and his conversation with Nicodemus for that, can't we? Men love what? Darkness. More than they do the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And what is the most evil deed among us? Unbelief. A rejection of Jesus Christ. Thought it was murder. No. Adultery. No. Theft. No. Breaking the Sabbath. No. Covetousness. No. Stealing. No. It's just stand face to face with the God of all glory and say, I don't believe you. Though you offer me heaven, I do not believe you. Are you still waiting on proof? Look no further than this text. Look no further than your own presence here this morning. God is a God of salvation and mercy in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you must believe that He is the Son of God. Let's pray.